Beloved, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 14 with me this morning. And we're going to finish out this chapter this morning by looking at the application portion to the text that we looked at last week. And you remember we've been talking about personal convictions, about liberty and the scope of liberty in Christ and how we are to handle those things. And so this morning, we're going to look at the application. We're going to close out this chapter. And as we read verses 13 through 23, I want you to pay particular close attention to verses 17 through 19. Because what we have here at the end of Romans chapter 14 are some application points that are sandwiched around what is the main issue for the people of God. Two applications regarding, you know, these, these, the, the, the relative, you know, importance of personal convictions and personal liberties. All of it fashioned around what really matters. What really matters. And so I want us to stand together and let's read these words and then we're going to pray and plead with the Lord to, to, you know, to send his spirit among us to teach and to train our hearts from these words. This is the word of God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Pay close attention. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine Or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The fate that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these are your words. These are your words that you have given to us through the pen of Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and they are words that are eternally binding upon our souls. Father, we don't have the right to accept or reject your word based upon our own wisdom. We don't have the right to accept or reject your word based upon whether or not it is pleasing to our flesh because certainly it will not be. We're commanded to receive your word because you're the sovereign God. And as your church, we are your people who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so whatever desires we may have and whatever longings we may have and whatever imagined wisdom we may have, it must all be brought into submission, measured, weighed, and examined by your word. And Lord, you give us clear instructions here and you tell us what really matters. And I pray that we'd have ears to hear it. Lord, we are living in a world in which, Father, we are promised there will be a great falling away from Christ before the end. When we are told there will be those who have the appearance of godliness but lack the power thereof. We're told that there will be tares among the wheat and goats among the sheep. And Lord, we desire to be 
the sheep of your pasture. And we desire you to be our shepherd. So Lord, I pray that, Father, as I preach this text this morning, that you would please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Please make me to be completely submitted to you in every single way. Let me be an instrument in your hands. Lord, let me be a vessel for your use. Take thorough and complete control of every one of my faculties and let me be of service to you and of good to your congregation. Not by seeking to be funny or entertaining, but by being faithful to your holy word. God, move in our midst. Grip the hearts of your people here. Plow them up. Plow up their hearts. So that the word of God as fertile seed would find rest in us. And bring forth real and lasting fruit. True fruit. God, let your word have its power. Let let the power of your word be displayed today. In the preaching of it. God be glorified. Exalt Christ. Exalt your kingdom. And humble us before your hand. I pray in Jesus name. Amen. Beloved, we're going to, like I said, finish up. Chapter 14 this morning, by looking at the application of the text that we looked at last week. In those first 12 verses, Paul was establishing some essential principles, right, of, as it regards our personal convictions, as it regards our liberty in Christ, and, and as it regards our relative spiritual maturity with one another. And to recap, and I want to recap very quickly, I just want to recap what makes this, why he wrote this text. What made this text necessary, right, is the reality that within every church fellowship, no matter, you know, who and what it's made up of, the people it's made up of, in every church fellowship, among the brethren, there are differences in spiritual maturity, right? We're not all at the same spiritual level. We're not all at the same place of sanctification. There is There are differences of spiritual maturity. There are differences in spiritual understanding. There are differences, even, in the thorough and complete application of the gospel to the whole of our lives. And because that's true, and because we are at different places in our sanctification, all of us, in the body of Christ, there are going to be differing personal convictions and understandings of the liberty that a Christian has in Christ among us. And I want us to remember that those differences, they're not a matter of essential doctrine as it's laid down in Scripture, right? It's not a a gospel difference. It's not a difference over the fundamental matters of the faith. Rather, these differing perspectives are personal determinations and beliefs regarding the conduct of our lives before the Lord in areas that are not explicitly defined by Scripture but which we hold to as a matter of faith and personal faithfulness to God. He's talking about those things where a clear absolute's not laid down in the Bible, but where each Christian is expected to develop and support his own conviction by the study of Scripture and by our conscience. They determine the way that we live. They determine what we'll do and what we won't do as an exercise of of Christian liberty and what we will do and what we won't do in areas of conduct that are not clearly explained in Scripture, right? And those things are important. But they're not of first importance. Those things are important. Our personal convictions, our liberties in Christ, and our right to them. But they're not of first importance. These things are not a matter of salvation, 
And they're not to be a source of pride or despising another believer. And they're not to be used to judge somebody and say, that person can't possibly be saved because they do X, Y, or Z. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul's not saying that we should never discern. Like I said last week, of course we are called to discern. We're called to discern what's pure and what's impure, what's holy and what's sinful, what's righteous and what's unrighteous. We're called to rebuke and admonish and instruct and exhort, right? Those are all needful things within the household of God, right? But what Paul is saying is this, is that there's no need for judgment where there's no violation of God's revealed will. In the matter of personal convictions... There's no need for judgment, right? There's no need for confrontation because they're not matters of sin. They're only God-honoring convictions. And moreover, we need to remember that each one of us stands or falls before the Lord, not on the basis of our personal convictions, not on our understanding of our liberties in Christ. We stand or fall before the throne of God on the basis of Christ's salvific work and our response to it, right? That's what matters most. Every sinner is welcomed by God when? When we respond, what? In repentance and faith to the saving life and the substitutionary death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. True? True? And the promise of God is that if we are truly united to Christ by faith, that He will make us stand in that last day. That He will make us to persevere and endure till that last day through our union with Him. Personal convictions and liberty in Christ are not a salvation issue. Still, they do matter, right? How we live matters. And so, whatever convictions we come to must be arrived at by study and examination and contemplation in the light of Scripture so that in whatever we do in matters that are not explicitly defined in Scripture, whatever we do in those matters, we can say of them honestly, I have come to this conviction that this is the way that I can honor Christ with my life and I can do it with a grateful heart toward Him. And Paul's saying his concern was, remember, that we've got to be fully convinced that how we're living is not sinful, that it is honoring to Christ, that we can do it in faith and that we can do it in the name of Christ with thanksgiving. And if any one of those things is missing, then your personal conviction or my personal conviction is invalid and we need to reject it. And the last thing he says is that we've got to remember when it comes to personal convictions and our liberties in Christ that it's not our place to call Christ's servants to account. It's not my place to judge you or you to judge me. Rather, it's our responsibility to love and forbear with our brother and our sister in Christ in the realization that each one of us will stand before the Lord and give a full account for our lives before His face, including whatever personal convictions or liberties we took. Right? Right? That's the recap. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the we're going to look at the application of these first 12 verses. And the main focus of of this instruction here from from verses 13 through, well, really 13 through 16 and 20 through 23. The main focus here is on the spiritually more mature. And the presenting issue here is, again, the issue of of meat Eating meat and drinking wine. But, you know, we, we're smart enough to make extrapolations from those two things to the other areas, right, that we talked about last week. But here's the, the real question. How then should we properly handle personal convictions and liberty in Christ among our weaker brothers or sisters? So the assumption now is that all of us are strong. Whether we are or not, we all think we are, right? And the question is, how do we, how do we handle this then? How do we handle it? And I'm going to break this down for us, beloved, into two parts. First, we're going to look at that specific application, like I said, in verses 13 through 16 and then 20 through 23. And then we're going to take a look at the foundational 
perspective around which these applications are sandwiched. We're going to talk about the main thing, what's most important. But let's start with this specific application first. Look at it. Look at verses 13 through 16 with me again and read it with me. Paul says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Now, What's Paul getting at here? What is he getting at here? Well, here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, he's telling the strong, he's saying, listen, guys, I want you to refuse to allow your personal convictions and to allow your liberties in Christ and your spiritual understanding. I want you to refuse to let that be of greater importance than the spiritual well-being of your brother or your sister in Christ. I want you not to regard your, and this is legitimate, your legitimate greater maturity. And yes, your rights in Christ. I don't want you to view those as being more important than the spiritual well-being and nourishing and encouraging of your weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, Decide never to act or to speak in such a way as to hinder or become a stumbling block to their spiritual growth, to their spiritual progress, to their walk with Christ. Look out for your weaker brother is what he's getting at. Take care for their walk in the Lord. And don't do anything that would trip them up and cause them to fall. Really here, it's a play on words in the Greek because the word for judgment and the word for decide, they both come from the same Greek root word. In other words, what Paul is saying kind of is this. Look, don't judge your brother and sister in Christ, but rather rightly judge yourself so that you don't cause your, cause your brother or your sister to fall. Don't judge them. Judge yourself. Now make sure we understand here, Paul is not saying to the strong, your convictions are wrong and you need to not practice those convictions at all. That's not what he's saying. In fact, look what he says. He says here, I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. He's saying, look, I understand. Like, don't, don't, don't get this wrong now. I understand that nothing's unclean in itself. Now, let's make sure we keep that in context, what he, what he means here, okay? There, there, are, there are things, obviously, much in Scripture that, that the Word of God declares to be unclean, to be sinful, to be defiling, right? The Bible gives us clear, absolute, binding commandments and instructions and prohibitions and, and, and commands those hard attitudes and desires and actions and words that constitute a real obedience to Christ, right? There are commandments that Christ gives to us. And there are th- certain things that we are to avoid, right? Paul's not talking about that. Paul's talking again about those things that are, that are not explicitly described in Scripture where we can each have differing convictions. And he understands the scope, you know, and the implications of the gospel. And he gets the fact that there are some liberties in Christ that that we are allowed as the children of God. And he understands freedom in Christ. And, and he's strong and he's mature in his faith. But he also understands, look, man, there are some people in the body of Christ that just aren't there yet. And they need room to grow. And they need room to mature. He understands that. There are people in the body that are convinced that for them, Something is unclean or defiling. And if they are convinced that it's unclean or defiling, then for him or her it is. 
And so the implication is we got to be careful not to cause our brother or our sister to violate their conscience because once somebody starts going down that path, beloved, you know what happens. When you start violating your conscience, what happens? When you first violate your conscience, is it easier or harder to violate your conscience the next time around? It's easier, isn't it? And then when it's the third time, what? It's way easier. And then eventually what happens? You, you sear your conscience so it no longer convicts you at all about anything, especially about sin. It doesn't protect you any longer. It's catastrophic. And Paul's saying, man, don't do that to your brother or your sister in Christ. Well, how does that happen? Well, it happens, I think, in a couple of ways. It happens, first of all, when a brother or sister, right, a weaker brother or sister sees another Christian doing something that he or she perceives as sinful or that's off limits to them, right? Something that they perceive is sinful, even if it's not objectively sinful. For them, it is. And they see their brother doing that. And it causes confusion and disillusionment. Especially, you know, if that brother or that sister, you know, if they, if they view them in a certain way, a certain light, they admire them and respect them, and then they see them doing this thing that they don't feel at liberty to do. And it leads them into judgment. And then the second thing is this. It happens when that weaker, that, that, that weaker brother or sister is led to go against the convictions of his own conscience and to participate in something that he or she feels that they shouldn't do, but which they are too weak to resist. Paul's saying, man, you better be on the lookout for that. Don't be walking around insisting on all, everything that you can do. Care about others more than yourself. That's why he says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. In other words, the whole issue here is one of love, isn't it? I mean, if we really love somebody, we're going to take care not to injure their conscience and we're going to be willing to limit our liberty for, for their own sake, aren't we? Aren't we? If we really love our brother and sister in Christ, look, we don't want them to act in opposition to their conscience. We don't want to give them any reason for offense if we really love them. Love doesn't seek to provoke. It doesn't insist on its own way. And so, therefore, if we've got to refrain from some liberty... In order to protect our brother or our sister, we should gladly do so. It should be no skin off our nose. It should be no big deal. We've got to be willing to refrain from what in our minds is right and good if it would have a tendency to damage a brother or a sister in Christ. And here's why. Because we're called to imitate God's love in Christ. Right? We're called to imitate God's love in Christ. And that love counts no cost too great in sacrificing itself for others, does it? Does it? In fact, Paul goes on. Look what he says. He says, By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Again, don't misunderstand. Paul is not saying here that if you callously practice, and you're in, you, without any concern for your brother or sister, you practice some liberty in them or you practice some personal conviction before them and you lead them to stumble, you know, and, and, and he's not saying that you can cause them to be eternally lost if they've been saved by Christ. That's not what he's saying here. But by insisting on our liberties, insisting on our rights, I have a right, we can bring great harm to weaker brothers and sisters, and we can derail their growth in Christ, and we can ruin and devastate them, and we might even drive them away from the church. That's the idea here. To do so 
to practice your liberty in such a way that, you know, that liberty that you regard as good, to do that would actually be rightly viewed as evil because it contributed to the spiritual injury of another person. That's what he's saying. It's serious business. In fact, he goes, he, you know, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Point being is this. If Christ died for your brother or your sister, if he sacrificed himself so that he or she would be saved, can you not sacrifice your liberty, in this case meat, can you not sacrifice your liberty for the spiritual good of your brother? Can't you? Or is that just too much to ask? Your sacrifice of some liberty or some conviction when compared to Christ's sacrifice of his very life, listen to me, is nothing. It's a nothing burger. Christ says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. It's no great sacrifice. Beloved, it's no great sacrifice to deny myself some liberty in Christ for the sake of my brother or sister in Christ, because that's what love does. Christian love doesn't insist on its liberties when it's going to hurt somebody else. Christian love gladly surrenders its rights for the good of others when the enjoyment of such things would come at their spiritual expense. And in that way, Christian love proves itself to be entirely different from the world's idea of love, which seeks pleasure at the expense of other people and knows nothing of self-control and self-sacrifice. That's the first big chunk of application, right? You with me so far? Are you with me so far? And then we jump down to verse 20. And Paul continues on a little bit more. He continues it. Look what he says. We'll just read the whole thing, 20 through 23, and we'll, 20 through 23, and then we'll kind of break it down a little. Look what he says. He says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is clean indeed, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And he says a lot of the same things here. But there's some more things that he says here that he hasn't said before. Well, what are we supposed to find? Well, first of all, let me say this. Most commentators, when, when they look at these verses, they see Paul as sort of opening up the scope here from speaking to individuals and talking of individuals to speaking about the effects that, that the, the proper handling of our liberties and our convictions are to have on the church as a whole. The work of God. And the idea is, is look, man, you better be careful not to judge or despise or cause to stumble or, or bring to, to grief or ruin our brothers and sisters in Christ because to do that is to tear down the church. It's to tear down the work of God. And that is no small thing. What's the big deal? The big deal is, by insisting on your own rights, you tear down the kingdom. You tear down the church. You're an enemy of the body. Listen. Speaking to the Corinthian church, Paul said these words. And I want you to hear these words. Sometimes we think that they're individually directed. They're not. The you in these verses is plural. Okay? It's plural. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, this is what he says. Do you not know that you are God's temple? The whole church. He's speaking to the church. You're God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, listen now, God will destroy him. Huh. Yeah, whoa. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Take care. Take serious care that you do not do anything to harm or destroy the church. I want you to think about that, beloved. 
He's talking about this in the arena of personal liberty and personal convictions. And if it's true for the lesser of personal convictions and personal liberties, think how true it is of the greater. Sin. Deliberate, open, unrepentant sin. Guard your heart, man. Guard your perspective. Realize that your walk's not just about you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Beloved, watch yourselves. That's what he's getting at here. Watch yourselves. So you don't cause anybody to stumble. And then Paul sums up his application by saying this. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. He's saying, look, man, you're, you're free to practice your, your convictions and your liberty in Christ. You're free to do that with a clear conscience, right? But, but keep it between you and God. In other words, listen. You're free to maintain your legitimate convictions and liberties in the privacy of your own home or with other believers of like mind, but don't force your convictions on anybody else and cause them to stumble. If you can practice your convictions and you're certain of them and you can do what you do to the honor of Christ and, and with a thankful heart, and you are not violating the scriptures, man, then blessed are you. Good on you, right? Be glad if you can say, I'm, I have never given reason for somebody else to stumble. Good for you. Blessed are you, right? But be careful not to try to force your convictions on anybody else. Why? Because he says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Don't put your brother or your sister in a place where they're forced to to make a decision that they're not mature enough to make. Christians grow to maturity at different rates. And as they do, we're not allowed to hurry or or to badger people to accept positions that their conscience at the moment cannot allow. Instead, let your brother or your sister do what they do by faith. Because for them to do otherwise would be to sin. And you don't want to lead your brother or sister to sin. And to do otherwise would bring on them condemnation and the discipline of God. Because whatever doesn't proceed from faith, by nature is sin. By definition is sin. Not just eating or drinking. But everything, everything, our entire lives are to be lived out of an authentic faith, are they not, toward God. And that's why Charles Spurgeon said, look, do nothing about which you have need to ask a question. I want you to hear that again. Do nothing about which you have need to ask a question. Be quite sure about it or leave it alone. Whatever you cannot do with the confidence that you are doing right, that is sin to you. Don't do it. So now that's the application, right? The way in which we're to walk in order that these personal convictions and liberties don't become a stumbling block or an albatross around our necks and cause a bunch of needless division and difficulty and hardship in the body, right? It's good application. We need to hear it. We need to abide by it. But in this text, there is something far more important at hand. There's a central foundation that informs these applications. And that foundation that established foundation that should be in each of our hearts is a proper perspective on the kingdom of God. We've got to have the right 
the proper, the biblical perspective. Look, obviously Paul writes these things that he does to the Roman church because they were having trouble in the, in the, in the Roman Christian fellowship over this stuff. And Paul's saying, you need to get a clue. Get a clue. You ever had somebody say that to you? Hey man, get a clue. Or hey man, buy a clue. Right? You ever had anybody say that to you? No, nobody here has ever heard that. I know you have if you've been in this church because I've said it to you before. When somebody says, get a clue, that's not a compliment, is it? It's like a yo, man. Hello. Anybody home? We already have the right clue here. What we eat or drink, our liberties in Christ, our personal convictions, listen up. In reality, in the big picture of things, on the scale of what really matters most and what doesn't, here's what matters. Here's what really matters. The kingdom of God. Well, what about my personal convictions? They're somewhere way down the list. Our personal convictions are ultimately, can I say this? And I mean this. I know, you know, they are important, but, but in comparison, they are ultimately insignificant when compared to the greater things of the kingdom of God. Right? And so we need to keep the main thing the main thing. We, church, all of us, together here as a body of Christ, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. Look at what Paul says here in verse 17. Right? He says, For... The kingdom of God is not a matter of drink, eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What matters most is not our liberties and convictions and all that other stuff. What matters most is the kingdom of God. Well, what is that? Man, what's the kingdom of God? I'll tell you what it is. The kingdom of God, beloved is where our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, reigns and rules over His obedient subjects for our everlasting blessing and for God's eternal glory. Amen? That's what the kingdom of God is. It's where, it's where Christ reigns and He rules. It's where Christ is supreme. It's where Christ's Word is law. A kingdom has a king. And a kingdom has a king and it has subjects. And we can't ever get confused about who's the king and who's the subjects. Christ is king. He is Lord. He is omnipotent master and personal majesty of the kingdom of God. And what he says is immutable, unchanging law. And I don't mean that in the sense of the Mosaic law. I mean law, big L, over everything completely law. We need to have the right perspective. You weren't born into this kingdom physically. You didn't just happen to stumble into this kingdom. And neither did I. We've been brought into the eternal kingdom of God, right? An eternal kingdom that was, you know, revealed in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells us how we enter into that kingdom when he was preaching in Galilee the gospel of God and saying, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's a kingdom that's present now in his church. It's a kingdom that is yet to be fully consummated at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been brought into this kingdom, praise God, by the sovereign grace of God. By, by the, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Man, that's facts. 
Paul describes it in this way. How God has, quote, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Praise God. We've been brought into the kingdom of God by the grace of God and by the blood of Christ. And that is what is of most importance. Not eating and drinking, not liberties and convictions, but that each one of us lives under the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ and that He governs the entirety of our lives and our life as a church together. Amen? That's what matters. And what is of first importance in the kingdom? Well, He tells us. Kingdom consists of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what's of ultimate significance, right? Not personal liberty. Not personal convictions. In fact, when you elevate those things to a place that they should not hold, or to insist on your rights is to be hopelessly out of step with the kingdom. I have heard people say before that, well, I joined a Reformed church because in a Reformed church you have the liberty to drink a beer. And I looked at that person and I said, you don't have the first clue about what it means to be a Reformed Christian. You don't have the first clue about what it means to belong to Christ or the first clue about the gospel. If your entire focus is, what am I allowed to do? How about this? What does Christ command of me? Well, the kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's about righteousness. The glorious truth of the kingdom is that We sinners have been declared to be righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ. That we have been justified in the eyes of God. And we have been, we have exchanged the filthy rags of sin and been imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Praise God. The glorious thing about the kingdom is since we've been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is about peace with God, isn't it? He's taken our sins. He's freely pardoned us. All our past sins, present sins, future sins, they are all forgiven in Christ. And now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been reconciled to God. Praise God, we're no longer children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but we are children of God. That's far more important than whether or not I can drink a beer. And that peace with God leads us to rejoice in the Lord and in the hope of His glory, right? That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 2. We're a people who are to be characterized by joy in the Holy Spirit, right? We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation, Romans 5, 11. We rejoice in His wisdom that made a way for our salvation. We rejoice in His grace. We rejoice in His favor to us who are ultimately undeserving. We celebrate His power to accomplish what we could not accomplish for ourselves. We rejoice in His sovereign, electing, and keeping love. We rejoice in the fact that God does not change. And therefore, His love, His grace, His wisdom, His power, His favor, His decree, they do not change. Beloved, as the redeemed of God, we're meant to enjoy Him and delight in Him and rejoice in Him. We're meant for joy in the Holy Spirit. That's where we look for joy. And these are the things of first importance. And they're also to guide the way in which we live with one another in the kingdom. They've got to form the foundation by which we relate to one another. They must dictate the way that we live our lives. Follow with me, right? If we've received the righteousness that is in Christ, then you know what we ought to seek? We ought to seek then to walk in righteousness, to walk in righteousness before the Lord, to become more like Christ, right? Right? The subjects of the kingdom of God do not practice lawlessness, do we? Do we? Our great concern should be to be people of integrity and of brightness, 
should be to be slaves to righteousness, should be to seek to be obedient to the commands of our Lord from the heart in the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, desiring to please Him with our lives and to treat our brothers and sisters in and with righteousness. We ought to be continually seeking, as Paul tells the Philippians, each one of us ought to be seeking that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Amen? They may have been addressed initially to the Philippians, beloved. But they're written to you as well and to me. How much time do we spend reading words like that and applying them to our hearts as we should? Keep the main thing the main thing. Think about peace. If we've got peace with God, then what should we seek to do? We ought to seek to be peacemakers, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? We ought to seek to live at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to do the things that make for peace, shouldn't we? We ought to be consistently bringing our emotions under the authority of the Word of God and our desires under the authority of the Word of God and our perceptions under the authority of the Word of God and our hurts and our feelings under the authority of the Word of God because that's the path of peace. As Paul said to the Colossians, I read part of it this morning before we sang. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. You know what that means? That means let the peace of Christ be the umpire of your heart. To which indeed you were called in one body, this peace of Christ. And be thankful. Well, how is it that the peace of Christ becomes the umpire of our lives? Here's how. By letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Right? Right? True peace within the church. True peace within the church is rooted in righteousness which roots us in peace with God. And it's rooted in the Word and in our relationship to Christ. And true peace in the body ought to be our desire rather than a worthless wrangling for certain liberties, right? Keep the main thing the main thing. And as those who have received the joy of salvation, as those who delight in the goodness of God to us, we ought to be seeking to enrich and encourage the experience of the joy of salvation in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to be joy spreaders. How do we do that? Well, some of us might be just as simple as walking around with a smile on your face. But more than that, how do I actually, like, how do I do that? How do I help a brother or sister to experience joy and salvation? How do I do that? Well, you do it by exhorting them to love in good works, not sin. You do it by calling and holding one another accountable before the Lord and encouraging us to live in such a way as pleases the Father. We do it by reminding one another of the richness of God's grace to us. We sing to one another of what God has done for us. We do it by helping one another to see Christ in the midst of hardship and struggle. We do it by promoting true fellowship with Christ in the Holy Spirit, by encouraging one another to whole life worship, by by calling our brother and sister away from the false happiness and the false fake, you know, pretend joy of, of sin to joy and obedience to God. We encourage joy by by making wrongs right, 
by mutual forgiveness. We, we encourage one another to joy by rejoicing together in the hope to come, not just commiserating about how jacked up our world is. It is. It's not going to get better. But rather than sit and wring our hands, we ought to encourage ourselves, encourage one another, encourage ourselves by speaking of the never-ending day and the joy of heaven to come. Listen, man. These are the things that are of most importance and that are guide the way that we live with one another. We ought to be encouraging one another in joy and working together for the joy of the gospel, keeping the main thing the main thing. And when we do that, Look what Paul says here. This is so good. Verses 18 and 19. He says to us, you know, basically, you that keep the main thing, the main thing. He says, whoever thus serves Christ. Whoever serves Christ in this way, in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God. And approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace. And for mutual upbuilding. Whoever serves Christ in this way, Paul says, is pleasing to God. You know why? Because he doesn't have just the form of godliness. He's got the very heart of it. He's not a hypocrite. He's not a self-seeker. He's not wearing a mask. He or she is real. And their greater concern is not for themselves, but for the kingdom of God and for their brothers and sisters in Christ. When we live like that, God is pleased. You know, sometimes as Reformed people, Reformed Christians, we think sometimes we can't please God. There's no way we can please God. There's no way that we can bring pleasure to God. I would encourage you to read the Scripture. The Bible says we can be pleasing to God. Paul gives us commands by which we can be pleasing to God. He tells us here how we can be acceptable. That is, i.e., pleasing to God. We can be pleasing to Him. And we should pursue that, right? We should be glad to be pleasing to God. And we'll have the approval of men. That is, in this sense, that they will recognize and see the power of the gospel in our lives. And when they see it, they're not going to be able to deny it because the evidence is so obvious, right? Instead of being overmuch concerned about liberty and convictions, beloved, Rather, Paul says, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. That word for pursue is great. It's a word that that means pursue. It's a word that means to hunt down. To speed toward a goal. To go hard after. That's the idea. To chase it down. Until you lay hold of it and it can't escape. That's the idea. We're to pursue peace in that way. We're to pursue the things that make for peace in that way. We're to go hard and hunt down a mutual peace that's grounded in reconciliation to God and to one another through the blood of Christ. We're to, we're to earnestly hunt down the opportunities to build one another up in faith, not tearing each other down. And you know how that happens? Here's how it happens. When we're all the same mind, when we're all the same focus, and we've all got the same perspective, when we're keeping the main thing the main thing. When we strive for holiness together, when we, when we seek to honor Christ together, when we pursue peace with one another, when we engage in proclaiming the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ together, when we proclaim the truth to one another, when we bless and do good in, to other people in the name of Christ, when we saturate our fellowship in prayer and worship God in spirit and in truth, when we are of one heart in treasuring Christ, when we are united in raising up faithful pastors here and abroad, pursuing those things, that will make all the lesser things fade. 
And it'll make smaller matters sink into comparative unimportance. And it will do so because our hearts will be united in the one grand purpose of making the name of Christ known. Of proclaiming the kingdom of God. Of exalting the kingdom of God. Of magnifying the kingdom of God of which Christ is king. It'll put all the, everything else, all our personal convictions, anything else you want to you talk about, it'll put it all in its proper place. And so Paul says, yeah, we can talk about personal convictions. We can talk about liberty in Christ. And, and I need to address those things. And here they are because you guys need to stop arguing over them. But you know what? How about you keep the main thing the main thing? Keep the thing that matters the thing that matters. And the thing that matters is not whether you can eat meat or only vegetables or drink wine or just grape juice or have a beer or near beer, whatever. Oh, I can see this movie, but not that movie. I can wear this shirt, but not that shirt. I can mix cotton and polyester or no, I can't. That's not the issue. The kingdom of God's the issue. The kingdom of God's the issue. That's the essential truth of this text. The rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ for our everlasting blessing and for God's eternal glory. That's what matters. And so what matters is, you know what? What matters is whether or not we live as citizens of the kingdom of God in submission to Jesus Christ, our King, in righteousness and peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. What's of greater worth is that we take care to do all and everything that will promote one another's growth in Christ. What is of greater precedence is that we edify and strengthen our brothers and sisters in an atmosphere of peace and love. What's of greater weight is that together we faithfully proclaim the gospel of Christ and that our lives and our conduct be pleasing in God's sight. No, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the main thing. So, beloved, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's remarkable to me. I I, I know I shouldn't be amazed But Father, I am amazed. I continue to be astonished and amazed at how under your providential care, at least for me personally, it seems like every week we're at a text. We come to a text that I need to hear, by which I need to be admonished. in which I need to be instructed and through which I need to grow. That's just for me. But Lord, I trust and I pray that it's true for all of us here. I pray that you would help us to see this day that what matters of greatest importance above all else is the kingdom of God. And that it doesn't consist in eating and drinking, but in righteousness and in peace and in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And that all of those things can only be had in the king of that kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us to reckon with that reality and that truth. Help us to believe it. Make our hearts to submit to the truth of this text so that you'll be glorified and, Lord God, so that we'll be blessed. Let us seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he's near. Father, I pray for those brothers and sisters that are in this room this morning. Perhaps that their perspective on things, not not even necessarily personal convictions or liberties, but perhaps, Lord God, there's been some way in which their vision and their view of what is of greatest importance, you know, is, you know, it's been it's it's been confused or distracted. Lord, I pray for me and for my brothers and sisters here that you would completely and totally reorient us on the truth this day.
And that we would seek, you know, if we're truly, if we're truly clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and if we really are at peace with you by the blood of Jesus, and Lord, if we really have a reason for joy in our hearts, that Father God, we would indeed walk in righteousness and holiness and uprightness and integrity toward you and toward one another. That Lord God, we would seek for the things that make for peace in the body of Christ. And that Lord, we really would do all we can to encourage the joy of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That whatever else we may have been giving our lives to, we'd say, those things are unworthy. This is. This is worthy. And Father, for those that are in in this room today, and, and you've opened their heart at least enough to see that they are not walking in righteousness, that they are walking in disobedience and rebellion against you, and they are breaking your law and living according to their own wisdom and their own desires every day. And if they're honest, there is no peace in their soul at all, but they are marked by turmoil and being, you know, tossed to and fro by everything that goes on. And Father, that they're miserable. I pray that you would reveal to them It's because they're in the kingdom of darkness. And the only way out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, of righteousness and and peace and joy, is through the way that you've made in the Lord Jesus Christ. Reveal that to their hearts today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.